Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So where did we leave off? We left off with Yosef being sold into slavery. Yeah? Midianites get him out of the pit and sell him to the Ishmaelites. Right? Ruvain goes back to the pit and Yosef and Enu isn't. He isn't. All right. So, so the Ishmaelites take him to, uh, Egypt where he is sold to Potiphar. Uh, and he works in the house of Potiphar and he rises quickly in the ranks of Potiphar's home. And it seems Joseph has a head for numbers. Um, and we're also told like Rachel, his mother, I think it's the only two people we're told in Torah that he is um, beautiful to, to, to look at his appearance. And this ain't about his heart that makes him beautiful, right? He's beautiful to look at like his mother, Rachel, where that is how she is described. It is my Hebrew name. And I have this verse of Torah. Someone had it calligraphed on parchment for me with a Torah by a Torah scribe. Um, so I have it framed in my office. So um, that Rachel was beautiful um, and special, right? They are special. And remember, in the ancient world, beauty was a sign of divine favor. So it was more than you were just beautiful. We know that to be an accident of genetics. And then you do what you can with it. Um, but in the ancient world, it was seen as a sign of God's favor. So both Rachel and Yosef um, were, you know, were seen as those in fa- in divine favor. Um, and so uh, at Potiphar's house, it is clear Yosef is rising, probably not only because he has a head for numbers and is responsible, but he there's something else he has that makes him attractive. Well, it makes him so attractive that what happens? Potiphar's wife is what happens, right? Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph day after day after day after day. Finally, uh, he's had it. Or she's had it. And um, she grabs him by his cloak, by his outer garment. This should resonate with us by now, right? The outer garment. Um, she goes and she pulls on it and he comes out of it to try to get away from her. Okay. So she grabs him by his cloak and he comes out of that cloak and to get away from her. And then she starts screaming. Essentially she screams rape. And then when they come to see what's happening, she holds up the cloak. Okay. Why, why am I making such a big deal of this? Talk to me about this. So first of all, his father gives him a cloak that makes him special. And the brothers tear it from him, which changes his fate, right? Then they take that garment to the father. And what are, what are they doing taking it to Jacob? So they soaked in the blood, yeah. Soaked in blood. What does that do? It tricks Jacob into believing a reality that is not so, right? Mm-hmm. What does Tamar do? 
Tamar puts on the cloak and the veil of a prostitute, right? So she, through putting on that garment, convinces Judah of a reality that is not true. She is, in fact, his daughter-in-law. She is not a prostitute. So he has intimate, literally intimate relations to a reality that is not true. Now what happens? Wife of Potiphar takes Joseph's cloak. He comes out of it and runs. And she uses it to trick the authorities into believing a reality that is not true. In two cases, it is criminal. The only case in which it is not is Tamar. And the Messiah will descend from that pregnancy of Tamar's, by the way. So not only is it not a bad thing that she does, she is the only one who uses this deception in a system that disempowers women and uses it to fight that oppression to achieve what should have been done all along. She is righteous in that deception. Right. So I love that it's only a woman who's because who's usually accused of deceitfulness. Women. So Torah says not so fast. Right. All right. And if it's going to happen, it's the Egyptian woman because they psh, forget about it. Right. So 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 that's so that's what happens. So now where's Joseph? What happens to Joseph as a result of this? He goes to prison. Right. So we looked last week at some language around that. Beta Soha. Um, he goes into a probably white collar prison. Um, because who does he meet there? The baker and the butler. Beautiful. The baker and the butler. Right. Through his persistence, he continues to interpret dreams. And again, we saw something that said his father gave him a glowing stone that he put right in his cup so he could interpret dreams, whatever. Um, a beautiful midrash. Um, in any case, he's persistent. He doesn't, he's not giving up. He interprets dreams in the prison and says, remember me when you get out. Neither one of them do until what happens. And that's what we're going to pick up today. Till what happens? Famine. Huh? Famine. Till what well, famine happens. But when do they remember Joseph? They, were, they get in trouble when they might die. What's the trouble? Pharaoh can't sleep. Why can't Pharaoh sleep? Because he's having dreams that none of his people can interpret. Right? Poor, poor Pharaoh. Okay. <laughs> people, you have to know your musicals. All right. Then you would know to. All right. So, um, so they go. So then all of a sudden, the one that survives says, Right? The butler says, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know a guy. Just like Chaim says all the time. I got a guy. I got a guy. I know a guy. So I got a guy who interprets dreams. Right? So they go get Joseph out of prison, chained and bound, afraid of Joseph stood before the throne. Yeah? My service to Pharaoh has begun. Tell me your problems, mighty one. All right. So, 
fourth grade Hebrew Academy, we did the whole thing, and my family is not pleased that yeah. I know every word. Because during this, these weeks of the Joseph story, it I, yeah, it's kind of the, no, it's the, the soundtrack to, my, to their lives. Okay. So, all right. Is the Hebrew word for Coke a donut? Is what? The Hebrew word for Coke. Um, it, it's an outer garment. The kutonet is the outer garment that they wore. Um, you can see, I should have, I should have had a rendering for you. Uh, all right. So Joseph stands before the most powerful man in the world. Yeah. Yes. He stands before Pharaoh and, and he, he, right. This is his only shot. He's standing before like, the literally most powerful man in the world. All right. So what is what happens? We are in what chapter? We are in 41, 41 verse. Uh, I don't. We don't need to go through the dreams. All right. Let's go to eight. Yes. In the morning. Yes. All right. By Hiva Boker, Vatit Paem Rucho. I wish we had Barry here to, to deal with Tit Paem. So it was, behold, it was morning and Pharaoh's spirit is right disrupted. Yeah. So he sent and had all of Egypt's magicians and all of its wise men called. Pharaoh recounted his dream to them, but no one could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I must call my faults to mind today. What are his faults? Pharaoh was once infuriated with his servants and placed me in custody in the house of the chief of the guard, myself and the chief baker. This is why we think it was a white collar prison. Right. He's being sent to where the royal servants are sent. He's not he's not where the scum of the earth right, are. The Jews are, the Hebrews are. Where, where the Hebrews are. Uh, well, they're not, they're not slaves yet. They're, they're not, nothing's going on yet. When is that going to happen? The first sentence of the book of Exodus is, and there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Yosef. That's, that's when it begins. Okay. And it begins because, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. But remind me to come back to that, Dana, because we're not here for the, for that part of the story. All right. He dreamt a dream in a single night, I and he. We dreamt each one according to the interpretation of his. We dreamt each one according to the inter- interpretation of his dream. Now there was a Hebrew lad there with us, a servant of the chief of the guard. We recounted them to him, and he interpreted our dreams to us. For each one according to his dream, he interpreted. And it was, as he interpreted to us, so it was. I was restored to my position, and the other guy was hanged. Notice the passive, was hanged, meaning you killed him, Pharaoh. But you don't say that to Pharaoh. It's impolite. So, well, the other guy, he got dead. Pharaoh sent and had Yosef called. They quickly brought him out of the pit. Notice the language here, right? They take him from the boar. It doesn't say from the prison. It says they took him from the boar. This is exactly the same word used when his brothers throw him in 
the pit in the dust, right? So Torah is very, very clearly drawing a parallel from that experience to this one. Once again, Joseph, not by his brothers, but by foreigners, is hauled out of the boar, is hauled out of the pit. He shaved. Think about your pictures of ancient Egypt, right? Changed his clothes and came before Pharaoh. So Pharaoh says, um, I've had a dream and I hear that you're pretty good at this. And Yosef, here's what I wanted to show you. Um, Yosef answered Pharaoh saying, what? Not I. God will answer what is for Pharaoh's shalom. God will answer at shalom paro, the well-being of paro. So what we've seen, we see with this a slight change in Yosef. Yeah? Yosef has twice now been in the boar. And has, I mean, once has been in the boar and risen. He's been in the boar again and has been hauled out and is standing at the precipice, the edge of his fate. And he says to Pharaoh, it's not me. It is Elohim who will look after the shalom of Paro. Pharaoh spoke to Yosef and tells him, right, seven, okay, about the cows. You can see it. <laughs> Um, and Yosef said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dream, right? Um, echad, who is singular. I don't know why they said one, right? It is unique. Like this is, this is a powerful dream. It's unique. It is special, meaning it's actually, it, it portends something that's going to happen. Um, and, uh, and it says saying something about a share Elohim oset, what God is going to do. It's being told, higid lefaro, is being told to Pharaoh. So he's talking in the third person as one does to royalty, right? He's talking about Pharaoh in the third person. So Joseph says to Pharaoh, your, your, the dream is, is singular and is, is talking about what God, God is showing what God is going to do to Pharaoh, is showing this to Pharaoh. Um, Seven years of bumper crops are on their way. Okay. So, um, or I could just, yeah, I, I, I'd be happy. I'd be honored to do it for you. Maybe, maybe pour them. All right. Seven years are coming, right? Um, of plenty. Uh, and, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. So now what should Pharaoh do? Select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint overseers for the land and divide the land of Egypt into five parts during the seven years of plenty. They're going to collect the food, right? And they're going to keep it under guard and then they're going to ration it. Yes. The word seemed good in Pharaoh's eyes because this is going to get them through the famine and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, could we find another like him? A man who what? Asher Ruach Elohim Bo. That the spirit of God is in him. Where's the last time we saw Ruach Elohim? The Ruach Elohim Merachefet Right? The Ruach Elohim hovered. 
Creation. Creation. Whoever said it gets a gold star. Rita Epros, Portland gets the gold star. So the Ruach Elohim, the last time we saw this was creation. The Ruach of Elohim is hovering over the face of the deep. Okay. So Torah here is taking us back to the moment of creation. Why? Okay. So I think Peter Pitzel is going to talk a little bit about this. Um, Pharaoh says to Yosef, since Elohim has made all of this known to you, right? Um, there is none as wise and as understanding, as discerning as you. You shall be the one over my house and to your order shall my people submit. Only by the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph is now right hand to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, see, I place you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Yosef's hand. And he clothed him in linen garments and put the gold chain around his neck. He had him mount the chariot of his second in rank. And they called out before him, Avrech. Okay. Thus, he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh says to Yosef, I am Paro, but without you, no man shall raise hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Yosef's name, Safnat Panea. This is an Egyptian name. Safnat Panea. God speaks and lives because Yosef has interpreted and claimed to be interpreting for his, for his God. Right? Um, and so he gets this Egyptian name and he gave him Osnat, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as a wife. And Yosef's, and Yosef essentially goes out over the land of Egypt, meaning his, you know, his Yosefness goes out over Egypt, right? And, and impacts all of Egypt. Okay. Here, he takes an Egyptian name. He is given the daughter of a priest of Egypt as a wife. And he now is number two in the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he stood before Paro. And he went out from Paro's presence and crossed through all the land of Egypt. And exactly what he said was going to happen, right? Happened. He has a son and he names him Menasseh, he who makes forget meaning God has made me forget all my sh- hardships and kol beit avi, all of my father's house. Mm-hmm. And the name of the second, he called Ephraim. God has made me bear fruit in the land of my affliction. So then the famine comes, right? And nobody has bread. And it was over all the surface of the earth, meaning as far as people knew, there's a famine. Like everywhere, as far as people got word from, there is famine. And all of the grain and all these other places was gone. And all of them came to Egypt to buy rations. Okay. Look at this word in 57. Lishbo. Lishbo shin bet resh is the verb for the noun shever, rations. 
So all, everyone, Ba'u Mitzrayma came to Egypt to rationify, right? It's important. This word is going to be important. Shin bet reish, shever. Um, uh, what did I just say? Rations. All right, Rita, what else do we know this root to mean? Lishbor. I was thinking it, it's also break, to break something. So maybe Utimus. Lishbor. To break. Someone around here gave a sermon on Rosh Hashanah, COVID, and gave a sermon about this word. Do we, do anyone remember that sermon? Of course, they're all going to say no. Um, nobody remembers. Diber. Shatter. The PL form of Lishbor, to break. Shiber. Shatter. Also the word for birthing stool. Ooh. Because that's where a woman's womb breaks open. Now I remember the sermon. Now you remember the sermon? Right? Because we either push or we give up. It was the end of that sermon. That was the punchline, right? We have to keep pushing and bring forward what, what is, and, and, and it's the word for crisis. It's the word for crisis. Mashber is the word for crisis. And mashber is the word for birthing stool. From this root to break. All right. So why is that the word for ration? What, what are, what kind of rations are we talking about here? Grain. Grain. Grain bread. Grain that turns into memet bread. Okay. Now talk to me about, about this. Well, we, 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 we break, uh, the challah. So we break bread. And what, what are rations for everyone? What has to break in order to make that bread? The grain. The grain. You have to break open the pod and get the grain inside. Hence, the long history of that word about breakage being what has to happen to the grain to make flour. You have to break it. Get out the fruit and you turn that into flour. So hence the word for bread, meaning what you eat when there's a famine. The minimum, the minimum you, you need to make it through a famine is some kind of carbohydrate, you know, some kind of staple like bread. Okay. Now, why does Egypt have food when nobody else has food? Because Joseph planned ahead. So did other people have seven years of bumper crops and just wasted it all? They might not have known famine was coming, but they have nothing left. Robin, are you trying to say something? Um, she's on mute. They had to pay taxes. They, they knew in Egypt because of Joseph. So they knew in Egypt that it was coming because of Yosef. How are crops watered in Egypt? The Nile. The Nile. So it is. It was a very common occurrence that there was famine everywhere but in Egypt. It's possible the seven years of bumper crops are so great 
where it's not great everywhere else because there's a different irrigation system in Egypt. When that happened, when other regions were in famine, regions that were rain dependent, they were very, um, uh, not fragile. They were very, um, uh, susceptible to famine because there's no rain. There's no rain. Um, right. So there, there's no, there's this whole joke about the crane in Spain stayed mainly on the plane, but I'm not going to tell it. So, uh, right. So the, um, uh, so the, if there's no rain, there's no grain. Um, and if you're looking at the Nile, there might be grain. This happened a lot. We know this from archaeological finds that the population of Mes- of, of, uh, Canaan would push down into northern Egypt to be either if they had money, then they purchased rations. And if they didn't, they came as itinerant workers because they could at least be fed by the crown because the crown would pay for foreigners to come pick their strawberries. Right. We see this everywhere. All those who were taken hostage in Israel, they were there working the fields. Right. Because if you're if you're a native, the last thing you want to do is harvest the fields, right? Unless you're an agri- unless you own the land and it's your field, right? So nobody wants that work. It's always itinerant workers who are hired to do that. So this is this is a case that we see from ancient history that they would push down from Canaan into northern Egypt, which is Goshen. So Torah. This is, this is a memory in the region. Okay. What is about to happen? So meanwhile, back at the Canaanite ranch <laughs> is chapter 42, verse one. Vayar Yaakov ki yesh shever b'mitrayim. And Yaakov sees that there is shever. There is rations b'mitrayim in Egypt. Right? And Yaakov says to his sons, why are y'all staring at each other? Like, very loving, very loving father here, right? <laughs> what are y'all looking at each other for? Shamati, I've heard, there's shever in Egypt. So, redu shama, run there. And here's the verb again. And rationify us from there. That we may live and not die. So the ten brothers of Yosef, you're due. They went down. You always go down to Egypt from Canaan. They go down to Egypt, to, to rationify, right, from Egypt. But what happens with Binyamin? Lo shalach Yaakov. Yaakov would not send him, right? Right? Lest harm befall him. The only living other son of Rachel. Now remember, it's been 20-something years that Yaakov has been living without Yosef and only with Binyamin, right? So does he think Binyamin looks like Yosef? Is it that this is all that's left of Yosef? Is it and all that's left of Rachel, right? So it's a... It's a sad 20 years that Yaakov has been living. Does he know that Yosef is climbing the ladder into 
He knows nothing. So one of the big questions that Torah does not answer is, and and there's lots of midrashic and contemporary reflections on it. Why doesn't Yosef contact Yaakov? We know that by the name of his second son. Which is? Ephraim. That he severed contact. No. His Ephraim is about, I was fruitful in a foreign land. Um, the, the first one is, uh, you're talking about that I have forgotten Beit Avi. Okay. I, I don't know that that tells us that he severed contact. It can mean he's, he's put, he's put that pain behind him. Why would we imagine that Joseph is in Egypt? Doesn't he think he's dead? Yes. Yeah. So why, so why would he even think that he's alive? The question was, does he know? The answer is no. So the, the the question I'm asking is, why doesn't Joseph tell him? Joseph's now the number two of Egypt. He can afford a helicopter. He didn't know who was alive. Then why didn't he ask? Why didn't he hire a helicopter and go to Canaan and find out about his father? He's got some nice brother. He has a wife. I mean, life is probably pretty good for him. So why can't he go and find out about his father? Send a messenger. He's still getting. He still has pain from his crying. Huh? Did he think that his father was behind the brothers throwing him in the pit? So one theory could be Yosef feels his father was complicit. His father sent him to look for the brothers and bring back word about them. Does he feel that was a setup? Okay. I just told us that he named his first or second son to the one who forgets his father. But but what does that mean? It means he disassociates himself from his past, from his own. Okay, but that but like I said, it could mean he's he's forgotten about what they did to him. It doesn't mean you forget your father. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think he just moved past it. So, all my psychotherapists, mm-hmm. Mamet. I mean, it's his father's favoritism that put him in the pit ah. and put him into slavery to begin with, ah. right? Nick says it was the behavior of Yaakov that put him in the pit in the first place. Maybe he has some conflicted feelings about Yaakov, and even if Yaakov wasn't complicit. Yaakov sent him alone to go to the brothers and didn't protect him. So think about parents relating to their children and children relating to parents after the Holocaust. There is much written, and Sarah knows more about this than I do. There is much written about parents and their guilt for not being able to protect their children and children their rage at their parents not protecting them from the Nazis. It is not rational. You can't explain to them that, and even when they grow up and and they know it was the Nazis and their parents were murdered or their parents were, you know, like hauled off too. It doesn't, it doesn't address the rage that they feel for their parents because it's not rational. We expect our parents to protect us. 
So it is possible that he has a very complicated now relationship to Yaakov and is not ready. And we see that he's not ready when the brothers come down there, don't we? Okay. So Mehmet and then, uh, is there somebody else? Okay. Mehmet, go ahead. Um, very, very shortly. Well, up, up until this point, we always thought, uh, Joseph's story is about, um, troubling relations between brothers. But now we understand it's also between um, sons and fathers. So it, yes. the, these two elements come into play. Yes. Beautifully said, Mehmet. So uh, Peter Pitsula, um does bibliodrama and he does it with Torah. And if you if you ever sit in a workshop with him, you are a privileged human. Um, and I had the great good fortune to learn with him in Duluth. We brought him to Duluth and he, he he's an amazing bibliodrama um, practitioner and he also explores in his book, Our Father's Wells, he explores exactly this, Mehmet, the dynamic between sons and fathers and between brothers, men, you know, as brothers. But there's a lot that he's exploring in the book about these ancestral, this arc of the ancestral narratives is about sons and fathers. So we know that think about Avraham and Yitzchak. That's a pretty intense father and son relationship. What did the relationship with Yitzchak and Yaakov produce? Did Yitzchak favor one of his sons? Yes. Yes. And was that son Yaakov? No. So Yaakov is raised with his father favoring his twin brother. Right? What does Yaakov then do? Favors Yosef. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole notion of the parent um, feeling helpless to protect the child is 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 very current right now. I mean, I was listening to um, an interview with a father from October seventh. You know, who was crying, saying, "I couldn't, I couldn't protect my children. I wasn't there to protect them." And what are they going to think of me now? What kind of father am I that I couldn't protect them? Mm -hmm. So that's what Yaakov's been stewing in, not what will they think of me because he thinks he's dead, but he's been stewing in, I couldn't protect my favorite child. Yeah. Right. I couldn't protect Rachel's firstborn. He's been sitting with that for 20 years. He wanted that sent him out. Okay. And he's dead because of me. Because yeah. a wild animal got a hold of him. Because I said, my dog got out of the house last night when I was going next door to do candle lighting and the little girls wanted to come because I forgot something. So they wanted to come with me. And so I, I, I forget what it's like to be around little kids. And I forgot for one second to close the front door and Olivia was like gone. And I, I live in a place where coyotes, we, we, we have to walk our dogs with a big stick now because the coyotes come over the ridge where we walk the dog. They come onto our grass. So like, for Yaakov, I, I was terrified that it was going to be my fault that I have to call Eliana and say, the coyotes got your dog because I left the door open. Like I was, I, I, I just all night, I was like, oh my God, I was this close. I was this close from Olivia being coyote food. Think about Yaakov because I didn't protect him because I sent him out there. Yeah. Coyotes 
tore him apart for dinner. Now, Yosef doesn't know what the brothers told Yaakov. He doesn't know that Yaakov's been told he's dead. But he also can't, I mean, could you imagine that he imagines them going, okay, well, dad, um, be some good news and some bad news. I, I don't think he can imagine them fessing up, right? So, so he's got to know Yaakov, right, is sitting with some pain. Whatever the, he can't know the particulars of it, but he's sitting with pain and does not reach out to his father. That is a very complicated story. I don't think Joseph has ever truly kind of related to people with personal compassion or anything. Cause I was struck, you know, early on when he said, when, um, Joseph answered Pharaoh by saying, no, I, it is God who will account for Pharaoh's well-being. It's like Joseph just took it off his shoulders and it's all on God. Don't blame me. And, you know, that's a really heavy, not heavy. That's a, um, you know, kind of Delphine Joseph. Interesting. He's getting himself. All right. So Dana's reading that Yosef is still really not a whole person. That he's let you're exactly onto where Peter Pitzel is going to go. So let's look at what Peter Pitzel has to say. It's a lot. And so we're not going to get to Zornberg probably. But I'll give it to you to take home. Um, but, but I think it's worth. I love this um, exploration by Peter Pitzilla from the book, Our Father's Wells. The moment of Joseph's release from prison, bottom of 214, and his appearance at court is nothing short of a revelation. This revelation produces a kind of conversion experience for the temporal powers of Egypt. Through Joseph and his dreams, the sacred pours out into secular life. Joseph, to your point, Dana, brings his God into Egypt and therefore into history. The God who dwelled in the innermost region of Joseph's heart is now revealed as the same God who, through Joseph, will work in the public domain. Joseph is revealed and recognized to be what he has been from the beginning, to your point, Dana, right, that he's not changed a lot. From his youth in his father's house, where he wore a cloak of many colors, to his tenure in the house of Potiphar, where the mistress was taken with his beauty, to his years in prison, where he distinguished himself in the eyes of the warden, Joseph has shown as a singular figure. Alone of the characters in Genesis, Joseph possesses charisma. Charisma, says Pitsala, is a myth word. Meaning when you hear that word, we, th- we think we know what that means, but we don't realize that that is a word taken from mythology. It is loaded. In the mythological sense, charisma is loaded. And now I've lost my place. Charisma uh, so it is, a, is a myth word. In it, we pay tribute to something alluring and dangerous about personal power that fascinates us and eludes our understanding. Through charisma, I mean, though charisma has traditionally modified the masculine, there is nothing gender specific in the term. The charismatic person, demagogue or demigod, seems gifted beyond the ordinary, arousing in us the deepest ambivalence of admiration and envy, surrender and opposition. With a sexuality both potent and androgynous, 
such a person is often the object of both women's and men's desires. Charisma is precisely that irresistible mixture of the spiritual and the sexual that most deeply touches and at the same time confuses us. Culture forms in eddies around such men and women and turns them into leaders, national figures, superstars. Joseph's story is in part the myth of the charismatic man who is thrust into political and public life and who faces the temptations and corruptions that come with extraordinary power. Why do you think I might have highlighted that? Familiar. <laughs> this, this, I think, is a big part of what is happening with us right now. And it can be Trump or it can be Taylor Swift. Hmm? Or Netanyahu. We are, we are looking at exactly what Peter Pizzola is talking about. The, the seduction of power and what it can do. Charisma is confusing. And I don't know about y'all. I find it deeply confusing. I don't get it. Disturbing. This is so interesting that Hebrew has no word for it. Right. Right. So then he goes into what words are used in Hebrew for Yosef. So go to page 216. So um, salach is one word. Um, it's used about Samson, po- about potency and strength. And chen, grace. These are the words strength and grace, but powerful strength and grace. These are the words Torah uses in Hebrew of uh, Yosef. So let's go to 216. Second full paragraph. If we stop at this point, we see in Joseph the myth of the man of power in all its glory and what? Hollowness. Dana, to your point, right? On the one hand, he has climbed to supreme success in the world's terms. He's just claimed he speaks for God. Newly cast in the role of Pharaoh's regent, he becomes a new character, complete with new props, sets, scenes, and auxiliaries. In the eyes of the Egyptians, he is and is named a god, having risen meteorically from obscurity on the basis of, on the basis of his extraordinary charisma. We see him as they see him. We too are bedazzled by his successes. On the other hand, we know, and the Egyptians do not, that this achievement has taken Joseph farther than ever from his own identity. The very trappings of his office trap him in isolation. He has lost his inferiority, and he has lost the kind of self-awareness, the wisdom it can bring. As a prisoner, Joseph was able to look past his own disappointments to notice the dejection of two inmates. Now he is insulated from disappointment by his supreme election. I was just listening to an interview with someone um, talking about superstars and how they are surrounded by sycophants and about people who are always saying yes to them and people just want to keep them happy. So they are also always infantilized. Like, give the star whatever they want. And this person was describing um, a superstar who, like, demanded um, a barber chair to have her hair and makeup done in 
not thinking at all about the person who had to carry that up four flights of stairs in a walk-up theater, right? So kind of the inability now to see the suffering of others that he was able to see when he was in prison. But now that he's a superstar, Pizzola is saying there, there's a hollowness that comes with being surrounded by people that just want to keep you happy because you're their gravy train and they don't want to upset you because then they lose out on profits and they want to keep you on the road and they want to keep you touring and other people want to keep you home writing so they can make money off your music. Right. So there's all, everybody wants a piece of you and wants your favor because that's how they make money and how they have access to power. And that what that can do to one is what Peter Pizzola, right, is is talking about with Yosef and maybe one of the reasons he does not reach out to Yaakov, right, that he might not have had the power to do that until now, but the same circumstances that would give him the power to do that are the circumstances that would make him into somebody who might think, I'm not going there. I'm done with all of that. I am now vizier of Egypt. I am whatever, like whatever his new name is, right? I am done with all of that Canaan business, those ignorant shepherds. I am done with that. I am Taylor Swift. <laughs> I don't have to play New Jersey if I don't want to. Hey. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No offense, man. No offense to no no offense to New Jersey. Yes. So, I mean, this doesn't paint a very pretty picture of Joseph. So, why do we bless our boys or, or yeah, our male children to try and become a Nasha? I don't. In the name of his children. Anybody know the answer? The rabbinic answer? Because they didn't fight. They were the first two brothers not to have this kind of relationship that Yaakov and Esau had, that the brothers to Yosef. It's not about Joseph. It's about they were the first two brothers not to hate each other. So peaceful siblings. As far as we know. I mean, you know, we don't really know their story. We don't we don't really have that. We've lost those stories. We've lost the stories of Ephraim and Menashe. Probably those tribes were in decline at some point and their, their ancestral stories were not preserved. Right. All right. So. Right. Um, so what is interesting mm-hmm. as a, as an insight into human behavior. Okay. Speak up, Mark. What's interesting is the insight or of human behavior. Yes, that right. The Torah is insightful about, right? And sometimes we need a Pitzela, a Peter Pitzela, to unpack it for us, and a Zornberg to unpack it for us. All right. So he says at this at the this season of his life, Joseph represents the dangers that await the charismatic man whose life becomes so consumed with power that his inner life, his family life, his connections to his roots and sources wither. Inflated with power, such a man acts like a god and believes that nothing can touch him. The same quality in masculine eros that can swell us can make us swells. Joseph's inflation rises toward grandiosity. 
He reminds me of the men of Bavel who believe who believed they were building a tower that would reach to heaven. Joseph's imperial power and regal authority verge on idolatry. He is in danger of losing his soul. Top of 217. Genesis makes it possible for us to be critical of Joseph, even as it chronicles his career. And showing us his prominence, it also shows us his emptiness. So this is, I'm putting these words into Pitzel's mouth, that this may be one of the reasons he does not contact home. It is beneath him now, right? Those ignorant Canaanite shepherds. And by the way, Egyptians looked seriously down on shepherds. Means he hasn't changed. Which means he hasn't changed. Or has changed in ways that are not so positive. Because the rabbis want to make him into a saint that he is devoted to God. And right, and and so even in adverse circumstances, he remains faithful. Even in Egypt, he remains faithful to Yudhe Vavhe. There is no evidence of that. To Dana's point, you could actually take it the other way. I have access to a God. Remember, he's in Egypt that is polytheistic. I have the ear of a God who gives me special powers to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh's fine with whatever God he's going to get the information he needs from. He doesn't care. He doesn't care which God it is. Great. So I'll, I'll, I'll make a temple to this. Elohim, right? Because what if it's little e Elohim? Gods. I have access to gods. Okay. So, and, and I think this is how Dana and Peter Pizzola are reading it, right? Um, so come down to the end of the, the, the paragraph just before those three thingies. Hunger is the hidden means by which a mysterious God, master of plots and timing, begins to move the past into the present, right? Because what's going to happen? We just read it. Yaakov, out of hunger, Joseph's past now comes into his presence because of hunger. What does what does Zornberg always talk about? What would she call it? Desire. Her book is called The Beginnings of Desire. Right. This is all from her study of Winnicott and these people about infants. Infants are not driven to do things unless they are hungry. They desire something. That's how they learn to crawl. They see something that they desire that they don't have. That is what pushes them to learn to crawl. That is what pushes them to learn to toddle. And to walk, is there something over there that I don't have that I want? That is what drives all of us. And I had this beautiful piece. I will send it to you. Um, it's, it's people, it's, we, we, interbreak needs to come. Um, it can't come too soon. Um, I swear I will, I go right to my office after this and I will send it to you. It's this beautiful piece Octavia Butler writes about Longing is what pulls us forward. Wanting something out of love and desire is what pulls us out of the self and out of self-obsession. 
and pulls us into right growth. And those are my words, but this is my interpretation of what she said. I will send it to you, but it's a beautiful piece, right? About exactly this. It is hunger that is going to bring Joseph's past into his present. We have been so immersed in the saga of Joseph that we have all but forgotten the family that abandoned him and that he left behind, that he in in turn abandoned, right? That he decides to forget. Okay. I'm going to give you Zornberg to take home. Um, I will have uh, Bert post it and I'll have uh, Rachel send it. Um, talking about Shever, talking about brokenness. She's that's where she's going. That's I was going to link to Zornberg because that's where she goes. It is the state of brokenness. That's why Shever gets repeated over and over and over as both breakage and as what? Food, rations, Shever, hunger is both an emptiness, right? A desire that then leads to being full, being sated. They are related, Zornberg, as Peter's hinting at it. Zornberg goes there. And she says, yes, that, that's why they're related, because that's what happens in life. And that's what happens with Joseph. It is the state of being broken again and again, his reality being broken, his suffering, his loss, that opens up the next opportunity for him to, right, to be, to have that, have things come in that change him. And we can talk about whether that's a change for better or for worse, but it's the, it's his fate, right? It, that only happens through those breakages. And that's how he is fed the next opportunity. That's why those terms for her are related. Is Shevarim, it's, just, it's the same as the shofar call? Yes. Shevarim, because it's broken up. Yes. Yes. That is exactly right. It's the it's the tikiyah is broken up because it is the sound of weeping because we have been broken by something. So, um, Okay. Hey, uh, yes. This uh, does magical work. You know the hospital works I have at the university, and he does these groups, and the other psychiatrists and psychologists stand back when he shows up. These are seriously deserved schizophrenic patients. Tremendously well. So uh, Rick is reminding us that Peter Pitzela uses this therapeutically. He does bibliodrama. Therapeutically, and he, Rick is talking about he worked, he worked uh, in a hospital with seriously schizophrenic patients and that, that the other experts stood back and just watched him work because he was able to open up stuff. Speaking of breaking open, right? He's able to open up stuff and he'll do it with one verse of Torah. The verse he worked with us in a workshop on all morning was, um, what's his chops? Isaac grew up and was weaned and they threw a party. That was the diverse of Torah we worked with all morning in a workshop. I was, are you kidding me? As you all often look at me like that's the verse we're going to work on. And, um, and he did magical stuff with that. And then you acted out. You, okay, where's Sarah? Who's going to be Sarah? Who's going to be Isaac? Who's at the party? Who's not at the party? Right, Right. And then you do the party. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Where's Abraham? 
Is he at the party? So anyway, um, all right. So a, gr- a good study as always. Thank you for your um, amazing attention and we will make a Misha Berach. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.